Welcome to the Fly Culture Podcast, bringing you interviews, reviews, and fishing tips. Here's your host, Pete Tigus. Hey everyone, this is the Fly Culture Podcast. Welcome back again. Um, my guest today is Simon Jeffries, fly angler and international sales director for Cortland. We will, of course, be talking about fly fishing fly lines and their importance as part of our setup but Simon also in a previous life was a golf pro and I'd be really interested to explore the similarities if there are any between our two pastimes but Simon it's great to catch up with you as always how are you doing today? Yeah great thanks Pete it's um and thank you for thank you for having me on um I'm good I'm sitting in my office uh down in Plimpton overlooking the the South Hams and the, the weather's pretty good today. So yeah, all's good. Thank you. That's great to hear. And have you, I guess I know the answer to this already because I've asked a number of people this sort of question, but how was your season? Did you get much fishing done? I guess, you know, are you one of these sorts of people as well that works so deeply in the industry, you don't get as much time as you would like to fish or do you make sure you set some time aside to do it? Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, I think anybody that's remotely successful in the fishing industry um, probably doesn't have the amount of time to fish that they would like. I do um, try to get out a few times at least um, every year. I've I have a have a regular trip that I do with a few mates where we go to we go to a different place each year. So we tend to sometimes we'll do rivers and reservoirs sometimes just reservoirs depending on where we go um and this year uh we did a may trip we went up to um up to mid wales and did uh Clwedoc and fished uh up in uh we fished the upper seven actually um for trout which was which was a river i'd never fished before and that was amazing um had a really good time just just away with you know three or four really good friends uh and then I guess from there, I tend to try and get out to Burrator, which is my nearest reservoir. Fish that three or four times this year, not as much as I would like, but you know, Burrator is a, a great early season reservoir. And uh, so sort of when it gets to, especially this year with how hot it was, uh, midsummer was uh, was going to be tough. So I tended to leave that alone, um, and I and I do fish the. The rivers down in Devon fish on the passport scheme, which they've got going down here, um, and try and get out that way. But I guess if I fish once a month, that would be that would be the most. Yeah, that would be the maximum. Nice. And a road trip with good friends is is something I think is to be enjoyed to the maximum and i think that's a really I, I remember when i was guiding i took some people and they were i think they were university friends or something like that and they were sort of in their late 40s early 50s but they yeah. still got together every year and fished somewhere yeah. and when when i took them out it was that one time but um it's interesting you mentioned burrator as well and I, i've got to admit i've never fished there but i hear it's quite an interestingly run place is is, is that correct in saying yeah, well, it's it's a beautiful reservoir, and it's um, there's a there's a club also. There's the Burrator Fish Fishers Association or club, um, which I joined when I moved down here, um, and we have two boats at the moment. There's plans for another one next year, and um, yeah, it's 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 stocked mainly with rainbows. Now there are some resident browns, 
but it's mainly rainbows and it's it's been the one I think for the southwest this year which has had although it's it is low um, but it's not as low as perhaps some of the others like Kenick uh, so it's uh, yeah so it's, it's a nice place to get away from it and um, and quite often you'll be maybe you know there might be half a dozen people fishing so it's 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 fairly remote and um, a good place to get away from it all nice it's interesting you talk about water levels as well i went to Collerford, which for listeners is actually i've done a podcast there. It's just suddenly dawned on me a little while back now and i went there just before the season ended and was astounded how low it actually looked and i think yeah. it was only 40 percent full and some of it was quite you know i parked in the the first car park there and and wonder, and you couldn't get to the water there because it was too squidgy. And I ended up around the yeah. dam wall and managed to fluke yeah. a couple of fish there. But it was the first cold morning. It was the morning we had the frost as well, so it made it challenging. It's a brown trout only reservoir and or lake, and um, it was quite challenging, but really enjoyable session there. And it just brought home how this summer has been and how the climate's actually impacting things. When you see it for real, it really does strike it home, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think Kenick is their kind of, you know, their their sort of flagship, um, if you like, uh, rainbow water, and that's that's pretty much been unfishable for the last few months. Just again because of the mud, you know, you just can't get to to get get close enough to fish it. So they they decided to stop Burrator, sort of keep stocking Burrator later on in the season, so that it gave at least somewhere where people could go and fish so yeah yeah and and you mentioned on your trip that you sometimes do rivers and lakes if i sort of got you in a, a half nelson and an arm lock <laughs> is there anything that you would choose would you choose rivers or lakes or you just enjoy it all really i enjoy i enjoy both i think if if you'd asked me the question maybe five years ago i would definitely have said rivers um I fished the. I was a member of the upper team when I lived in Oakhampton, and I fished that quite regularly and and quite a lot of the other rivers. And I never really. I guess I probably didn't understand still water fishing perhaps as much as I as I should have. Um, and then when I started going on that trip, actually with the guys, you know, where we go away each year, um, there were a couple of years where we went to the sort of Midlands. Um, reservoirs and i was kind of forced to if you like to to get on a boat and, and fish those and I actually became quite fascinated with the whole different you know way of fishing and and especially actually with with being involved with courtland now you know the different lines that that you do need at times to to fish those waters uh and so the last few years i've actually got probably more into still water fishing uh, than than river fishing. Um, in fact, this year probably I've only had three or four trips to the river, so it's been it's been ev- mainly still water. Uh, right. So it it does vary, but yeah, both I do love both. That's an interesting transition to make. It's almost some traditionally may think that's almost the reverse, isn't it? Of of how Absolutely, we used to go from yeah still water yeah. to to moving water. Definitely, and actually, one of the one of my friends that goes on the trip with us, he has done completely the opposite. He was you could never get him near a river up until about four years ago. 
he would say, oh, no, I don't go to a river. The water moves. And, you know, uh, he was he was just solely still waters. And now you can't get him off the river. Once once he found it, he loves it. And that's and that's where he goes. So, yeah, it's I guess it's just a change that sometimes we all need. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that I think is with, I always think even if in the spheres that I fish and I do a little bit of still water, but not as much, I enjoy it every time I do it as much. My, But within our spheres, we're always evolving and looking to learn. And I think, you know, that's why for many of us that fly fishing is still so interesting because there's so much we don't know and there's so much to do still and to discover. And, you know, the thing I did with carp the other day on wild carp and catching them on sighted fish on flies was really, really exciting. And I was shaking like a, a small kid still. And I don't think that ever, that feeling's ever going to go away. And I think, you know, it's wonderful to hear how people evolve in, in different ways. You know, I, I talk about the traditional one, but it just doesn't have to be traditional if, if no, you don't absolutely. want it to be. And, I, and actually there's, um, there's some guys that, that – a few things going on, again, down in the southwest that I certainly want to try um, in the future. I know Rodney down in Cornwall is, has been um, – he's been testing out some of our lines actually this year for, um, for mullet and for bass um and i've done a little bit of the bass thing but i've never done the mullet so uh that's something that i would i would certainly like to try in the future as well yeah i can recommend it having spent time with colin and paul and the guys and i funnily enough i was hoping to see if there was some on the tamar tomorrow um but i'm told it's the river's pretty big there um comparable to my side on the tour that it's it's quite a big river so i was hoping there might be some around and see if i can tempt those and i've had great fun doing that infuriating but wonderful in, in Every, everyone says it drives you crazy is that right yeah yeah it is that and again that's what the more stupid the more ridiculous the more difficult it is the more I enjoy it and the more it interests me. So I'm still trying to figure these ones out. They're thin lips. I think that I'm drifting. I've got some of those little ceramic nymphs and I've used those and I've used other stuff and just dead drifting them in the flow has been great fun. So I wanted to sort of work on that a little bit more, but it looks like I'm scuppered there. So it's probably back to thinking about grayling. But these podcasts are great because, and particularly when I'm talking to people in the industry, because um, the industry, when we look at it, we don't always know who the end person is. And it's really nice to be able to talk to you and for listeners to get a sense of you as a person as well. So it makes it less as, less of a corporate um, entity, but it's the person that they're dealing with as well, which sure. to me is really, really important. Um, and I wanted to get a sense of you before we move on as an angler. What sort of an angler, how would you describe yourself as an angler? Are you one of those sort of people who runs to the river, putting on their waders, falling over, stumbling? Do you take you know it what? nice and easy? No, Do you... I, am, I am one of those people. I am. It's amazing. I think when when you get that, when you do get that day and you know you're going – um it's uh you know you're up at silly o'clock um and uh loading up the car and getting the flask ready um and getting there and and literally yeah you know instead of doing what you should do and take your time and you know 
get everything prepared. No, I'm, I'm definitely the in the other camp. I'm a I'm a get the waves on as quickly as possible. You know, as if we're gonna we're gonna miss something, and, and I'm literally run down there. You know, so that's that's me. Um, but as far as my my kind of ability, I would still put myself very much in the enthusiastic amateur camp. Um, I'm, I'm sure no... that's not true. I've seen you cast, <laughs> and I'm sure that's well, not true. But I think well, you're being I... incredibly modest. Well, I get by, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely in no ways um, an expert when it comes to to fishing. But um, I, I do enjoy it, and I think because it, because I, it wasn't perhaps my only or my main hobby growing up. Um, I, I guess it's kind of you know something that's always been there in the background, but something that was perhaps never my my number one go to when I was growing up, and, and so later in life it's it's just become you know for me uh, it is still relaxing it's never although i say it's you know i run down there and i and i and i'm in a rush to get there um when i am there it's still very much a, a kind of a relaxing thing and it's it's just a a great way to to lose lots of hours <laughs> Yeah, that that's a good call. And so are you somebody, because I've got, I think, again, with my friend Warren, we're entering some sort of arms race that over the summer, I, I spoke to him on the phone yesterday, and we're talking about our next trip. And I said, well, do you want me to bring up some burgers? Because he, he brought a wonderful <laughs> steak stir fry last time that we sat under <laughs> an umbrella amazing. in the rain that he cooked. And that's, a, a, do you sort of fall into that camp that you like to sit down, have a little bit of lunch, and then take stock? of things or do you say because and i I've, i fully understand if, if people are listening as well that if you don't get so many days to fish you want to pack as much in as possible so w- which camp which foot yeah. have you got your which camp have you got we, your defi- foot in? we definitely have that we definitely have the stop for uh, generally we have if i'm if i'm with friends we have the stop for lunch for sure um and quite, actually i've started fishing with my youngest son quite a bit he's um He's got into it the last few years. I met actually the last trip I had was with him at Burrator, and we just had um, we just had a little stop for lunch and a nice little kind of meze thing going on, a couple of beers, and um, just just had a chat. Because even when you're with someone, you know you can't really when you're fishing, you can't really talk to them all the time. So it was uh, it's nice to have that little break and and sit down and and have a chat. So. Actually, another group that I used to go away with, um, the lunches kind of turned into a little bit too long and a little bit too alcoholic at times. Um, they like to bring a couple of bottles of red, and then the fishing in the afternoon definitely suffered. So, so they actually decided that they'd put a time limit on lunch after after a couple of years, so we didn't get too carried away. A messe lunch sounds as though you'd slot in perfectly which i'm thrilled to hear and i get what you say about the drinking thing as well and i'm not a particularly big drinker but there's two things i don't do one is drink and drive and drink and fish because i'm worried it would get in the way of things so i've never never done it i don't think actually thinking no, about it at lunchtime or but a glass of wine and stuff i know is cool but yeah i just don't don't yeah, do it for some reason no and it's probably the best way i mean like i say we know you know, I literally maybe one beer or a glass of wine. So, um, but, uh, and that's not, you know, every time we go, but it is, it's quite nice to have that little social thing going on as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. I know in the, the last but one trip with Warren, actually, I found this new um, farm shop on the A303 called Teals, and I bought a focaccia loaf, and I think we pretty much <laughs> ate that <laughs> along yeah, with everything thing. else that we bought. It was so good. Um, yeah, I'm not getting sounds, paid sponsorship for that, but I, I'm very happy to accept paid sponsorship for that focaccia loaf. It was so good. So that was really, really cool. So it's lovely to get a sense of um, how you feel about fishing, and that's great. I think that will resonate with many people listening. As I mentioned in the intro, I only wanted to touch on it briefly, but I know in a previous life that you were a golf pro. Yeah. And I often think about the similarities between a golf shot and a cast, and I'm thinking about timing, application of power, all those sorts of things. Did, does that sort of something that registers with you? Yeah, I think definitely as far as the as far as the timing thing goes. Um, I mean, growing up, I I played literally every sport you could think of, um, so I was kind of um, jack of all trades, I guess. And um, golf was just one of those. But the timing, as you say, the timing element of golf is similar to fishing. The transition period, so that. There's a obviously a big transition um, point in golf from the top of the backswing into the downswing where there's a there's a shift of weight, um, and that, that's similar to the rod loading and the and the trans, transfer into the into the forward cast. Um, as far as other things that don't work necessarily between the two, and Nick Hart um, would be a would would testify to this because he gave me my first lesson um, in fly fishing, and one of the things that you do in golf on the backswing is you have a, a definite hinge of the wrists. Um, and so the first thing I was doing when I was when I was casting a fly rod, as I went back, instead of keeping my thumb nice and high, I would I would literally let my wrist hinge so the so the rod would drop way too low on the on the back cast um and that was the first thing he noticed he said you know what are you doing oh, i said oh that's golf you know it's, i'm so used to getting that hinge of the wrist so yeah although the timing thing definitely works because i've i i, I get the timing quite nicely with the fly rod um there are things that perhaps don't work as well and that's that's also evident in lots of sports. You know, there's some sports that mix with others and some that don't. So, Yeah, that sounds a, a small issue. I know when I used to teach, I think it was squash players, I was thinking I'd immediately, because I'd ask them, and then as somebody giving a lesson, you can sort of make comparisons or get people to think about those things. And often I think squash is very, very wristy, and we had Jethro Bins on actually, and I talked to him about that. I said because when I would teach people who played squash, it was incredibly difficult to get somebody to not rotate the wrist as as yeah. far as they they were doing it. But tell me something. It's interesting. As somebody used to watch golf swings, I still, and although I'm not teaching anyone now, that. Even if I watch another sport and it might be golf, I, I've no interest whatsoever in playing golf, but I love watching professional golfers play it because yeah. it's such a phenomenal 
um, to me, game to be able to try and master, and your risk-reward just doesn't make sense to me as the average punter. Um, yet when you see somebody hit a, a golf swing that's nice, or it might be another sport, as somebody who's watched that that stroke, as it were, in, in fly casting, do you ever find yourself looking at other things thinking, yeah, that was really nice? Is, is that part of you still hardwired in some way that makes you look at those things? Yeah, there? I think definitely. And, and, you know, I taught for, I taught for 20 best part 20 years and so you you kind of you so used to looking at people and the only difference is now when I look at someone fly casting although I can see perhaps whether they've got a good rhythm or good timing there's certain things that I can't see so my going back to my youngest son he's got this weird thing that comes in every so often he gets a he gets a tail in loop and and I I watch him and I watch him and I can't see the difference between when the line goes out perfectly and when he gets this loop and I I, I can't for the life of me see it. So he's going to have to go and he's going to have to go and see somebody, whether it's you know yourself or Nick or somebody to to get that ironed out. And uh, so yeah, I see the I see the overall and I can see when um, you know people have got good timing, good rhythm. Um, but as far as the you know the intricacies, um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I could I can pick those up. Mm. And one of the things we talk about when I talk with guides and instructors on here as well, just just almost finally, um, that did you think about the mental aspect of the game as well and people's mindsets when they were approaching you know you said it it was 20 years you did it and I know that psychology aspect to sport has come in more recently but was that something you were aware of mindset and everything else when you were teaching people yeah absolutely and it and it it resonates with me even more because actually I did later in my golfing career I actually suffered quite badly with um with the yips which if people don't know what that is it's a it's a sort of involuntary movement that when there's a still so when you when you're in a sport where there's a still ball or you're instigating a movement um darts players get it golfers get it um other sports and i had it quite badly in golf um and it's it is a bizarre thing because you can literally be out there playing perfectly normally and then just suddenly you you just can't take the club away and it's a it's like a mental block um so i think within golf and lots of other sports you know the mental side of it is is huge probably more so in golf because it is a still ball and it's you that actually instigates that movement you have all the time in the world to think about what you're going to do whereas if somebody bowls a cricket ball at you then it's a you just react to that ball um if someone kicks a football to you you react to that football um i don't know whether in fly fishing whether anything like that would ever i don't know whether anybody's ever ever suffered with with it in fly fishing i probably would think not but it's possible because it is a sport where you are instigating that first movement. Um, 
but the mental side of of all sports is is become huge. Um, obviously, there's there's um, high profile guys in in lots of sports who have who have um, you know got help from people like um, the guy that wrote the chip book. Like I know Ronnie O'Sullivan, obviously you know genius at snooker, um, but went through all sorts of mental issues and and, and sort of found help. So um, yeah, it is a big part. Maybe maybe not so much for the for the average Joe in the street playing golf, but as you as you take it more seriously, I guess that that's a side that you have to you have to work on too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's going to take us on um, to the next segment. Although it did remind me, and I, you were saying about the average Joe playing golf, and my late aunt's husband Gerald was a photographer in um the 60s in swinging london and um he sadly is is not as well as he 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 was but he was a golfer and he tells a wonderful story and i'm sure this doesn't happen in fishing but it may do and he always told a wonderful story about the golf club where he played that they saw a guy on the hole in front of them chip his ball into the lake picked up his trolley his bag and everything else threw it into the lake and walked off yeah he came back five minutes later took his shoes and socks off rolled up his trousers got his car keys out the golf bag (laughs) threw it back in the lake and walked off again (laughs) did did you ever experience that have you seen that you know, I have heard that story. I have heard that story, and I don't. I think it's been probably um, embellished by people as to as to where it actually happened. But I'm sure it did happen. That guy that um, that threw his clubs in and then realised his his keys were in there, but 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 still put the golf bag back in the lake after he did. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But and it is that kind of sport. It is. You know, it's it can be amazing and it can be infuriating, and and anybody that's that's played golf will will know that. Yeah, and isn't that amazing that that brings us back onto mullet as well? Then does it, which are a similar <laughs> yeah, sort of thing? So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure I'm in for all of those frustrations when I when I finally go out and try and catch a mullet on the fly. Absolutely. So we're going to segue across now to your career in the fishing industry. And like I said, you're International Sales Director of Cortland, but you've been in the industry a long, long time now. And you work with Turrells, the fly manufacturer, for a number of years. But then you made the move to Cortland. And I just wanted to get a sense of how you're finding it. How did it come about? Was it an easy decision? Because I know, obviously, the setup that you had there. And I've got to say publicly a huge thank you to you. You bailed me out massively once that I remember phoning you frantically that I'd been fishing, I think, on a Sunday. I was guiding on a Tuesday and my fly box had fallen out i was due to guide on the tuesday i had no flies i'd lost everything they'd either fallen out my vest or wherever it was and you very kindly helped me out and i came up and bought some flies so i sort of know the setup there but was that a interesting trip or journey for you to take leaving somewhere where you'd worked for a number of years to take up and yeah different role i mean i guess i guess the first major change with me was was going from golf to to Turrell, really, um, because I was kind of set as set as a golf pro. 
Um, and it was actually my my first wife's father who owned Turrell at the time. And he was getting to that point of of retiring. Um, and I had no real intentions of, of leaving the golf industry, but we had a we had a walk one Sunday after lunch and he said to me that he was thinking of retiring um, and that, you know, was I set staying at the golf or did I, did I want to look at the business? And it, it was an unbelievable opportunity. He'd grown Turrell into, into a very good company that, that started, you know, way back in the, in the seventies with just a few girls tying flies in a, in a chicken hut in Devon. Um, and, you know, he built it up. And anyway, I got involved in that. Um, fast forward kind of, um, I was with him for roughly eight to 10 years, um, working as a sales director. And then um, we sold the business uh, to part of our production company in Mauritius. So we had tires in Mauritius. Um, and the the company that um, that were running that, the family bought Turrell, uh, and I, and Todd retired, and I stayed on as a sales director with the new owner um, for about five six years. Um, and so yeah, that's how I got into the industry, and then I was you know I think just things had kind of run their course with with me at Turrell. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't that I was hating it, but it just felt like the right time. Um, Dylan, I think, you know, the new owner, he wanted to take it on to, to different different stages and, and was maybe looking at the business slightly differently to me. Um, we'd actually, in the last three years that I was at Turrell, we had become the distributor for Cortland in the UK and Ireland. So, and I had a, a long established relationship with Cortland going back right to when I first came to Turrell because Cortland were actually the distributor for Turrell in the States. And then we continued to make flies for Cortland the whole time that I was there. And so uh, I knew Cortland right the way through kind of their transition period to where they are now. And um, so when I left Turrell, I'd got a really good relationship with John Wilson, who's the, the president of Cortland now. He'd, um, the, the guy that was running international sales for them had left um, a couple of months before. John was kind of overrun trying to, to cope with that himself and needed somebody to do it. And um, he kind of said to me, look, I need someone to do international. Would you be interested? And uh, again, it was a, it was kind of a no-brainer for me because it was at a time where Cortland had really kind of turned things around from a from a quite a turbulent kind of ten years, um, and there was some proper product development going on. There were some good guys involved with the business. Uh, John was was running things the right way. He basically turned the company around from from being in quite serious trouble at one point. Uh, to to really starting to to build their way back up and and that's continued. Hopefully, I've well, I I think I've helped them to to do that. And um, the Cortland kind of the Cortland name is now um, 
in a much and the, and the company is in a much better place than it was 10 years ago um, and it's exciting to be involved at a time where where things are things are on the up that's great to hear and i think it speaks volumes about you as a person as well that when the um buyout f- uh, of Turrell came about that you stayed there for five to six years it would be easy to say well I'm off now or it doesn't work and it also speaks volumes of their how they felt about you as well that you know they didn't instigate change or anything else so kudos for that as well and I'm, I'm interested and intrigued to learn more about um, what Cortland are up to but I want I, I think it would be wrong for me I wanted to bring up about let's use or let's talk about the Cortland uh, the 444 peach which I'm sure many listeners know about but for me in what seems to be an ever increasingly faster marketplace they have continued to put that fly line out, which I think speaks volumes for it, and not changing or tweaking a winning formula. Do you think, I I guess first off with your Cortland hat on, you must be extremely pleased that there is a product like that that has great history, great heritage, that pretty much sells itself. But do you feel that products sometimes are brought to market even quicker than they used to be, or is that just me standing on the sidelines looking at it? Well, no, I think that's true. I think in in certain areas of tackle, you know, people tend to bring out products. um, They almost feel like they've got to bring out something new every year. Um, And to a certain extent, I guess in fly lines, we're always looking at new fly lines and, and how we can improve and how we, you know, what maybe what tapers or what, differences we can make to us to a certain area of the sport um but the 444 you know has been just such a successful line over the last sort of 40 years uh that and it's still a great fishing line you know it's the, the thing is with fly lines there's only so much you can do to change them and make them better and sometimes some of the changes that that you make in fly lines, they will make one aspect of the fly line better, but they won't necessarily improve it overall. So, for instance, the peach is the peach is is a very supple fly line. So it's it's made with a braided core. It's very supple, so it has very very little memory or no memory in in in, in most cases. So you can fish it, or you know. Any time of year, whether it's whether it's quite warm or whether it's cold, it's a great line for the UK because we never really get it so hot that there would be an issue with the coating, which you could get at very high temperatures because it becomes a little bit tacky. Uh, but the peach performs really well for the UK. It's probably why it is so successful. It's certainly everybody's go-to line on small still waters in the winter as well because you know you just don't get the memory so what what some of the some of the newer lines what they've done and 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 we've done it too in 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 some of our lines so the trout boss for instance that we do now is has got a much harder jacket on it um 
So it's much slicker. It's got some treatments that we do. We do a, a heat treatment which seals out any, stops any sort of dirt getting into the into the line. Um, so there's lots of things that you can do to a fly line that make it nice and slick and it will make it cast really well and it will make it cast further. But if you change one aspect of a fly line, then it changes other aspects as well. So when you hear people talking about they get a lot of memory on a fly line. Now, that fly line will almost certainly be much harder than a peach. It will have a harder jacket. So it would perform probably quite well in normal warm conditions in the summer. But when you get either early season in the spring or you get fishing now, you would find that you would start to get some memory. And it's not that there's anything wrong necessarily with the line. It's just that because of the makeup of that line, it's you will it will tend to, to get that slight memory issue. So um, that's a, a kind of a, a loose description of, of you know how you can change fly lines to, to make them cast better, but they don't necessarily always fish better. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that's 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 one thing there. Nice. That's a good point as well. And I was while you were talking, I was thinking that there were only a couple of things. I remember speaking to Jim Barchi at Scott many years back, and the G two rod was a similar sort of case. That you know they just kept making it until I think they've only done in their career two iterations, three iterations now of that G series rod in however yeah. many years. And it is the classic case of if it ain't. It broken don't don't fix it and you don't need to yeah it, it it brings me on nicely as well because i was thinking about when they brought a rod called the s4 a little while back and that was their first stiffer faster rod and yeah. i went through a lot of lines and i remember i had a peach sitting there like many people listening i had a uh peach and put it on and i think geez this this really works nicely and i spoke to people much smarter than me about it and said look what do you think and it was really pleasing to hear that and i think as anglers as well uh, uh, the term all-rounder is a good one to have and i think that ticks the box, box rather nicely doesn't it it does. Um, interestingly, the the peach actually, although it's it, it's it's actually more popular this side of the pond, as you say, than it is than it is in America. So in the states, um, you know, they've tended to go more for some of the newer lines, some of the you know, like the trout boss, the ultralight that we've got in the range now. Um, and again, perhaps because conditions are a little bit warmer over there generally. Um, so they probably find that those lines fish better throughout the year. But it's interesting you talking about the, you know, the faster action rods and, and it's one area of fly lines that I think people generally need to learn more about to make a better informed decision as to, as to what line they choose to go with whatever rod they may be, they may be using. And um, without delving too much into technicals, but, you know, probably most of you know about the AFTMA rating of fly lines, which which actually was brought out 
in the 60s, I think the early 60s. Um, and that was actually Leon Chandler. He was the, the president of Cortland at the time. He got together with a with a group of guys and they brought out the AFTMA rating, which which basically meant that you had a seven-weight rod and you put a seven-weight line on it. It was easy. So at, most of the rods then were all kind of the same action. So it was very easy. If you had a six-weight rod, you bought a six-weight line. Um, now, people will know now that that isn't always the best way. So what happened was as the rods got as the rods got faster, uh, they they you know a six weight line wasn't perhaps loading a six weight rod properly. So people would then fish a seven weight. Um, and that was fine also because that again it was an informed decision, I guess, and because all the lines were still the same. And then what happened was manufacturers started to bring out lines that were a different weight, so not every seven weight was the same. And this is what kind of um, clouded people's judgment, if you like, that it's, it's actually quite difficult to choose the right line for your rod if you don't know exactly what weight that line is. So what I would urge people to do is to at least learn a little bit about the grain weights of fly lines so that you can make a better choice. So, for instance, our seven-weight peach, for instance, is 185 grains. Now, as I said before, that there was a time where all seven weights would have been 185 grains. But now we're in the situation where some companies will go half a line. So our seven weight is 185 um, and our eight weight is 210. Now, what will happen is some some manufacturers will put their fly lines a whole line weight heavy. So their seven weight would perhaps come out 210. Um, some companies will put it half a line weight heavy, so it might come out 190, 195. Um, what we do, what we did to start with, we left everything, uh, and the 444 range, the complete 444 range, is still on true line weights. So they're all the seven weights of 185, all the six weights of 160, etc. We then had the situation where people were coming to us with a rod that they bought, seven-weight rod, they put a seven-weight peach on it, and they said it doesn't cast properly. And that's effectively because the rod wasn't a seven-weight. It wasn't acting like a seven-weight. It was really, it was, it was an eight-weight. So they needed an eight-weight line. So we kind of fell into that, into that period of having to produce lines that so we now pursue like our trout boss is a full line weight heavy. So the six weight is 185. Now that's okay if people know that. So, you know, so in other words, if you've got a fairly fast action rod, um, you would want an eight weight peach or a seven weight trout boss. Now I know that sounds ridiculous, but we had, we kind of, we were almost forced to do that. Now, we, we've also got the situation now where there are companies out there where they've got a seven weight in the range, which is 295 grains. 
Now, for those people that don't know, that's effectively a 10 and a half weight line. So people are, they've got a seven weight rod. It might be fast action. They think, oh, I'll put this seven weight line on it. Well, actually, they'd be much better putting a six weight on, which which sounds ridiculous. So it's making an informed decision. And I think people, um, you know, if they can just find out how their rod casts and once they've got a line that they know works with it then they need to just check the grain weight of that line to make sure that when they're ordering lines in the future that they're ordering the correct line um the other thing that you can do is obviously you can you can speak to somebody that has the information and that knows if anybody ever is is unsure as to what line they should be putting with their rod or what weight line, you know, I'd be more than happy for them to contact me and, and ask me, you know, say, I've, well, I've got this rod, what line do you think I need for it? So there's nothing worse for somebody than getting, you know, having a rod where the line is underweighted because it, you know, as you know, it just won't cast properly. But also you don't want to go the other way and get it so overweighted that it's, you know, it's overloading the rod because you get all sorts of issues that way as well. So it's about making a decision based on the right information rather than rather than guessing in some cases. I think that's, a, there's, there's, that's brought up so many um, points and questions for me. The first one, you know, if it's that heavy, it's going to look like a pile of spanners. It's probably going to look like a Skagit line as well, which... I'm sure would be detectable very, very quickly if if you saw it being cast. There's also the argument there for if you're able to, to get along to a tackle shop and try stuff with different lines. That makes life a whole lot easier as well. And I'm also thinking about from a rod manufacturer point of view as well. And to me, at least, it feels as though we've gone through that ultra-stiff, ultra-fast rod action now i don't know what the reason for that is it may be breakages it may be whatever it is that people are whacking it or it's too stiff or whatever it may be manufacturer process um, resins and everything else that it may be that people are moving to less aggressive stiff tapers so as a result of that a are you detecting that as a company that brings out some rods but also is that as a result of that, do you think that will bring rods back into the correct grain windows? Um, I think it I think it could. I think that the, the only thing that I would I would like to see, and I know Brooks, who's our fly line guy in the States, I know one of the things that he would love to see, I, you know, I think it's it's maybe not up for us to say to a rod manufacturer maybe what they should be making, but what we'd like to see is we would like to see a rating on the rod. So if someone brings out a seven weight rod, um, you know, they, they write seven weight on it. Well, instead of writing seven weight on it, write maybe put seven weight, but also put, you know, grain weights 190 to 210 or 190 to 215 you know at least then someone can look at it and go well okay so i've got a i've got a rod here that that wants a, a 210 
um, fly line. So I'll buy a Triac Boss 7 weight or I'll buy a Peach 8 weight. Um, and then they can, again, they can make an informed decision. So we would, we would certainly like to see rod manufacturers putting that on their rods. So do you think that opens the door? Because I was thinking what you said about rods, and I think there are some double-handers that had it. I don't know if they still do. Um, but do you think that opens the door then to us forgetting about the rating system in a numerical sense and just purely rating a rod by grain weights and saying this is a grain rate, yeah. this grain weight is great for fishing small stillwaters or whatever? Do you think that's a direction we need to look at? I certainly do. Yeah, I think it's you know at the end of the day, you know as I as I've been explaining, you know that the fact that something has got seven weight on it now, it actually really doesn't mean anything anymore. And I know Charles Jardine actually wrote um, wrote an article in um, Tackle Trade World talking about this and saying, look, come on, as an industry, we need to we need to get better and I I think it would be I mean we we certainly put the grain weight if people work in grams it's quite easy to work out the the equivalent gram weight and I know in Scandinavia they tend to work on grams rather than grains uh, but yeah absolutely I think if if the rod companies had a had a grain weight um, on the rod and we just had a grain weight on the line people would 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 quickly get used to the fact that that's the information they need rather than this is a seven weight, this is a six weight. Yeah, yeah, that that would be a, a fascinating way to go. It would make that process so much easier as well, wouldn't it? And, you know, it, it just takes somebody to to do that and i i guess everyone's sort of thinking about these things and we all know it and as end users we do i think you know the the days of you know i think about rods and lines that i haven't i don't go a line heavier for the fishing that i'm doing i find a line that's suitable for the fishing i'm doing it may be towards the upper end of those tolerances but i'm aware of what they actually are and and how they work but not it's those extremes aren't they that make it look something that it's possibly not whereas yeah. it just needs a little pull, pulling in just a little bit to make it easier for people to say right okay well look these lines are in this and all it takes is two or three manufacturers and to say right okay this is what we're going to do now boom 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 boom, and then everything else we will i would suspect fall into place quite nicely wouldn't it yeah i think it would and it's um you know like you say the, the thing I, I again i get frustrated i see things on some of the you know some of the facebook groups and and some of the forums where someone will will just automatically recommend a line weight heavy for someone. So they'll say, oh, you know, do I want to buy? And, and quite often what they're actually doing is they're not recommending a line weight heavy. They may be recommending two line weights heavy because the line is already one line weight heavy, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't know if that person can cast or how they cast. 
um, what they do. Do they take 23 false casts to get the line out? Do they shoot? I suspect if you're two line weights heavier, it's a point and shoot situation, or it should be with a line that way. Um, but you you don't really know, do you? Whereas if there is, no. this is really, really interesting to me that, yeah, if you know that's the grain window, boom. Um, and, 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 you know, as, as a producer of salmon lines as well, that's gone that way relatively easily and people have picked that up relatively quickly and simply, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And we've all, we've all seen that guy, Dan, on the, you know, trying to cast a line that, that is underweight as well. And he's, you know, he's, constantly false casting thinking you know why isn't this why isn't this line going out and it you know it's because it's it's doesn't match it doesn't match the rod so it's it's so important and it's and and the thing is that sometimes you know i mean the fly lines they are you know that they've come on so far and the technology is there and and everybody should have a line that performs well with the with the rod they've got, and it and it would just improve their their fishing experience so much if they if they make sure they get that right. Yeah, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Here's a question for you: Then, what is the most important piece of fishing tackle? <laughs> so I'm going to say the fly line. Now. Yeah, good, I am. Good. You know, I am actually going to say the fly line. The reason the reason being when I first started fly fishing i actually went into into summerland's tackle in westwood ho um, which was also run by an ex-golf pro which is quite weird but um so the first um the first rod i bought i think was uh, was a shakespeare i think the real i can't even remember what it was because he said to me oh don't worry about spending money on a reel you know that just holds the line that that kind of old 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 thing that people you know that people said but he said what you do need to do is get a decent line and he actually sold me a Cortland line at the time it was a 333 so it was a sort of 30 quid price point now bear in mind that was more expensive probably than the real and was probably half the price of the rod um but he was he was absolutely right because you know with fly fishing the line is the thing that gets the fly out to the fish. So if if you you know you can have the most expensive rod and you can have a, a lovely reel on on the rod, but if you if you haven't got the right line and you haven't got a decent fly line, then it will it does make things it does make things difficult. So I think it it was good advice that I got back then, and I've certainly tried to say to people, you know, try and buy. Um, the best line that you can it doesn't it doesn't have to cost you a hundred pounds obviously you know that the, the peach even with even with um you know the the situation with the currency in the uk at the moment but the, the peach is still around about 60 pounds so it doesn't have to cost you a fortune um and um it's important that you get something that's going to work yeah that's the perfect answer that's exactly the one um i was hoping for and yeah a rod's not going to work if you haven't got anything to work it properly everything else the fly choice everything else doesn't matter if you can't make the rod and line work together so perfect answer there um i i've been thinking about a conversation we'd had on the phone the other day as well um let's come on to rods very very quickly because i know Cortland do some rods 
And before I go on to this point, actually, um, because I wanted to, it's an interesting choice that you have. And it seems to me as though you have rods that will do uranymphing applications and then rods more for still water applications. Um, is that fair to say, or is there anything else in the lineup? And can you tell us a little bit about the lineup and, and what it actually involves, if I've got that wrong? Yeah, so um, John, who's uh, John Wilson, the, the president at Courtland, he's um, he's got a, a long history with fly fishing and um, and with rod manufacturers. He used to do some work with um, with Loomis years ago, um, so he was keen to bring in uh, some some rods, and we we went for a very kind of niche range, I guess. Um, the nymph rods we we work with a lot of guys that that fish that method uh, a lot of very good anglers ex-world champions valerio in italy um devon in in the states and um we wanted to bring out a range of rods that um you know were perfect for, for what they for what they what they meant to do so uh the mark ii nymph rod has been very successful it's run now for about four years five years maybe um and again we we didn't want to be in a hurry to kind of add rods every year. Um, it's got a really good following. Uh, there will probably be a new nymph rod at this time next year. So it'll be in the catalogue for 2024. And um, again, hopefully sort of a step up again as far as as far as quality. But we do, we do in the nymph rods, we've done a range. So we do a 10 foot two weight. Um, ten and a half at three, an eleven two, and an eleven three. So it's a very you know niche, small range. It's got a really good following. Um, they're they're excellent rods um, for that for anybody that 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 does um, Euro nymphing. And then we also have a mid price point um, nymph rod, um, which is the the nymph series rod, which sells at around about three hundred pounds. Um, which again we do in just just three models a ten and a half two ten and a half three ten and a half four um so it's a good way for people who who want that sort of entry level rod um to come in the competition nymph rod that we did for the still waters uh we did a 10 foot uh six seven and eight weight they they had success um they I think what we've what we've learned from probably our our venture into high end rods is that perhaps that that high end as far as the lake rods um, it's it's a just massive competition in in that kind of sector. Um, so the plan is to bring out um, a range of lake rods and also some river rods next year. Um, sort of regular stuff like nine foot fives, nine fours, but again in that sort of mid price point. So I think our our high end rods, I think, will stay just in in the Euro nymphing rods. It's where we've 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 kind of found a, a little niche where we cause, because we do the the rods, we do the lines, we do the um, the indicator mono tippet ring so we do a whole range of of nymphing products um and that's been successful in all over the world actually um 
and um, has, has got a good following now. So I think we'll continue on with that. And in the other areas, I think we'll bring in kind of a more mid-price point rod around about the £300 mark. Nice, nice. Well, I look forward to seeing that. That uh, entry level ten and a half footer sits nicely in the lineup for me as well. So I may be sniffing yeah. that out a little bit later. Um, I'd like to move on a little bit, and you know, we talked about landscapes changing a little bit, and how we'd like landscapes to change when it comes to grain windows and everything else. And I look with great interest at the modern world and away from fishing, and sometimes into it. I look at our culture, and I look at um, the influence of culture with great interest and it seems to me that that landscape is changing um, and companies and I know we've talked about it on here before that companies realize that there is no metric to measure the let's say influence of an influencer and I'm not just talking about fishing here there's no way to measure that metric and so I'm probably not going to buy a rod if i see a picture of it next to a fish i'm going to buy a rod if somebody like yourself or paul proctor or charles jardine as you mentioned pete cockwell people like that stefan people like that say yeah i'm you know this is a really good rod pete i'm probably gonna buy it rather than and i can understand and i'm using rods as the example here because I can understand waders, a picture of waders or a jacket or stuff like that. I understand, but I'm never going to buy a rod because somebody's put a picture of it next to a fish or whatever that may be. I'm I'm looking, A, I want to try it myself. And I I looked the other day and I saw a, I'm going to call him again in inverted commas, a review, but the person, all they really did was describe what the rod looked like, which for me... I don't care that much about the cork. If I'm spending a lot of money, the cork's got to be good, but I don't look at it under a microscope. All I care about is the blank. What is the resin like? What's the modulus? Everything else that I'm interested in, what can I make that work with from there? And I know when we talked the other day, because it seems to me that companies, I'm more likely to buy something. If you put something out saying, this is our latest rod, this is da-da-da, and there's video, there's whatever it may be that goes with it, and there's a great way to do that now and reach so many more people in a different way. And I know we were talking the other day, and you said to me that you'd written some stuff for the Cortland website that went out on that website, and as a result, it worked really, really well for you. I know you work with a very small group of seasoned professionals as well, but do you detect that? that and and I'm asking that question only because that sort of – it seems to me that's how you're thinking. And I think a company, when they're producing their own media, have got a – this is only my humble opinion – have got a better way of engaging with their end user – rather than via a third party. Is that what you've kind of been thinking? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think the influencer thing is, you know, is, is obviously huge in certain industries. Um, and there are certain industries perhaps where it works better than others. Um, I agree with you. I don't think somebody who, who just happens to be, you know, standing there holding a big fish um, with, a, with, say, a Cortland cap on is going to make someone go and buy a Cortland fly line. Um, so we, we've tended to try and get much more content based, um, media. So, so we're working much more on, um, we're doing, we're doing 
the, so the blog I wrote was was following Valerio while he fished um, at the Masters in in Italy, and it was kind of a day of him fishing and how he goes about it. And yes, he uses Cortland rods, but he uses Cortland rods because he wants to use them, not because we pay him to use them. Um, you know, the guy's a double world champion, so he's not going to go and fish a competition with with a with a rod that he doesn't think is perhaps the best for him on that day. Um, so we tend to do that. We we've just actually and and I think podcasts. You know, this podcast I think is has been great. I listened to this while I was on holiday. Actually, I listened to quite a lot of your um, your editions um, while I was sat by the pool. Um, and I think this gets information over to people much better than, than, you know, seeing something on Instagram or Facebook. So Cortland have actually just, just started their podcast called Hooked. Um, they've, they've recorded a couple of um, episodes already. Um, they, they're getting different guests in each, each week, similar to you. Um, and just talking to them about their, you know, their fishing adventures and their experiences and, um, and maybe touching on, you know, touching on tackle and and um, and and talking about it, but not just ramming it down people's throat to say, oh, you know, you need to use this. One of the things that going back to when I was a golf professional, one of the things that like, you quickly realise when you're in an industry is that ultimately you're there to try and help people to get more enjoyment from their from their pursuit. So. In golf, by teaching them, I was helping them to improve and get better. If they came to me and said, you know, what would you recommend? What shoes would you recommend? What clubs would you recommend? You know, I have to make sure that when I'm selling or recommending those products to that person, that they're going to be right for them. So when they go out, they work and and they play better. Um, And I think that's that's really important in fishing you know that that people get an informed choice as to what they're going to use or what they should be using um rather than just you know shoving something on a camera and saying oh you know you need to use this well why do i need to use that you know why do i need to buy that line what will that line do that this line won't do what will that rod do that this rod won't do so the more content-based um, promotion, if you like, that we can do, then the better because it, it helps us and it helps the, the end user. Yeah. And uh, uh, the key thing about that for me is there's no ambiguity either. You know, if it's cooler putting out content, then you know where you stand with it. You can go down a difficult route with those things. And you know, even when I was guiding, I never sold tackle because I didn't want it to be about that. Now, I could have sold a lot of tackle, but and I wanted to. And it's interesting for me, because sometimes people think we have no adverts in the magazine because I'm anti-tackle industry. I'm not at all. If anything, I'm more pro than a lot of people um, out there. And this is a way of supporting it. It was purely that we came late to the market, and I didn't think the model of, of bringing a magazine on advertising revenue would work so that's why i didn't do it and this is a way for me now to support something that i believe strongly in but but having products that you are 
pushing via your own channels, I think is a whole lot easier. And it's easier for you, like you said in the piece that you wrote, to measure that metric. That has resulted in X sales as a result of that. That has worked. And people know where they are. So you're directly interacting with that end user. And that's really important. And it's really, really easy to do right now, isn't it? With, with social media the way it is. Absolutely, it is. And it, and it's what people want to see. People don't, you know, we, we all get enough adverts and, and things popping up every time we go on our social media. You know, people have had enough of that. They, what they want is they want content. They want to learn more about their sport, about what they should be doing, you know. And, and I think... I think it is changing. I think it's definitely changing. I think hopefully we're helping for it to change. Um, and I've, I've seen lots of things, you know, in the UK, lots of people that are now focusing more on that than just, just, just the photos and the, and the hashtags and, um, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, 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 I think it's improving and I hope it continues because um, it's certainly the best thing for, for, for people, you know, the more information they get, the better. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I hope that the rod rating thing comes to something a little bit more as well. And I'll do in my tiny, tiny little way to try and push that because I think that's a really interesting uh, topic and interesting thought and Ooh, one that you. makes life so much easier for us end users as well so long sure. may that continue can you believe we talk well over an hour now no <laughs> and- it, it is amazing but no it's been it's been great pete I, I really appreciate um you having me on hopefully um you know i've helped to to make um people more aware of of their choices um as far as fly lines but um also hope that um, hope that they've enjoyed it. And like I say, if anybody ever wants to get in touch with me and ask me advice on on lines or anything else, then then um, hopefully we can put uh, my contact details and and they can get in touch. This has been a great example, actually, of one of the reasons I do this. Um, a, I love talking about fishing uh, all of the time, but what's really important to me is people get to see the person behind the name and for Europe it's yourself and get to see they're a human being. They feel exactly like we do about many of the things that we talk about and they're trying to affect a bit of change as well. So I'm all for that. Simon, where can people get um, contact details for Cortland? Where can they get contact details for yourself and social media channels, anything you want to fire out there? Yeah. So as far as Cortland go, obviously courtlandline.com is the, is the main website. Um, as far as, um, contact details for me, if they, if they send an email, there is a, there is a area on courtlandline.com where they can just send a message to Cortland, um, and just mention where you are in the world and that will get forwarded to me and I will answer. That's fantastic. Simon, it's been great to catch up with you as always. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Fly Culture Podcast today. Thanks, Pete. Everyone, this has been another episode of the Fly Culture Podcast. As ever, I try and vary and alter the 
um, content that we have in these these chats that hopefully make them interesting for you and even 150 so later that you're or plus so that you're still enjoying those um, this one has been a great chat and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as me if you are if you could consider perhaps subscribing and perhaps if you have enjoyed it leave us a review as well um, we're not looking to make money out of this in the slightest it's just want to spread the word and give something out to the fishing community but thank you so much for listening to the fly culture podcast the fly culture podcast is brought to you in association with fly culture a quarterly print magazine for more information please visit flyculturemag.com you can also find fly culture on instagram facebook and twitter